Thanks, Julie, for uh, reading God's Word to us this morning. I just want to add uh, just the very warm welcome we have received today. And uh, we are blessed to be here, we're excited to be here, and to serve uh, the people of Pakenham. We look forward to what God has in store for us in uh, 2024, and uh, looking forward this morning uh, particularly to share God's Word with you. I've decided through the month of January we're going to do a mini-series on uh, the heroes of the faith. And as you would have uh, gleaned from this morning's reading, our first hero is Abraham. So we will spend uh, four weeks looking fairly broadly at Abraham's life. And there are some wonderful lessons to be learned from this man of faith. And I look forward to sharing that with you. Before we do that, let's uh, just open uh, in prayer before we uh, dive into God's word. So let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he was born, he died and he rose again for our sin. We thank you for this just wonderful act of grace. And we pray uh, this morning as we start a new year that we'll live a life that is worthy of the calling of Christ. Father, we pray that your Spirit will empower us, that your Spirit will encourage us, that your Spirit will refine us, convict us, and transform us from day to day. Father, we long uh, to be with you, But Father, we know at this point in time we're here on this earth to proclaim the good news of Christ and give us the strength, give us the perseverance, give us the heart to do that. Whether that's with our workmates, whether that's within our family, with our children, with our friends, with our relatives. Help us always to be ready in season and out of season to give a the reason for the hope that is within us. To tell the wondrous news, the good news that Christ saves. So Father, we pray that as we open your word this morning, as we look at this hero of the faith, Father, help us to see beyond Abraham and and see your goodness. See your plans and purposes that are working through the different characters of the Bible. Encourage us by what we understand and what we see today. We just pray these things now in the powerful name of Christ, our risen Saviour. Amen. Okay. I don't know about you, but uh, when you're locked into a forced lockdown, you you tend to start watching far too much television. I think that was probably, uh, we we didn't suffer in the same way as you did here in Victoria, but we still suffered the the aspect of being uh, at home 
and not being able to go out that often. And so you start looking at different streaming services. And, and Julie and I got a little bit, uh, what's the word, hooked into the, the series on Netflix called The Crown. Who's seen that here? Yeah, okay, so it's a bit of a historical fiction, right? It's based on historical events of Queen Elizabeth and, and the fiction side of it is predominantly most of the dialogue because we don't really know what was said between king and queen and, and um, family members, but it was a fairly, uh, fairly good series. One particular program really captivated my imagination and it was the events outlining Winston Churchill. And it was towards the end of Winston Churchill's life and they were trying to uh, celebrate this, this man's legacy. And so what they did is their co- his colleagues decided to gift him a self-portrait. So an artist would come in and, and Winston would sit there with a cigar in hand and, and what have you and the, the, the picture would be painted. But what becomes blatantly obvious throughout this episode is the disdain that Winston has for the end result, for the image that ended up being on the canvas. Because in his eyes, he, he saw a picture that depicted himself as an old and powerless man lacking vigour and drive of success. It's a bit like the picture of Julie and I in Pakenham Life, really. You'll see that image and you'll immediately understand it was taken some years ago. So it's a false portrait of who we are. We were that way once, 15 years ago. It's a bit like an author of a book, right? They always put the best picture on the back cover. So that's what you received. But, you know, Winston Peters here, he really struggled with this true reflection of his age and stage in life. It revealed the roughness and the pimples and the warts and everything the artist saw. It wasn't a whitewashed version, a, a doctored Instagram photo or a Uh, But the painting really revealed the true image of the subject. It's really interesting because in God's Word, the Bible also reveals the true image of characters throughout God's Word. Throughout the chapters of Scripture, we, we don't see people described in a, with a fairy tale image because it's a, it's a book about real life and about real characters and a, about real experiences. And the Bible tells the complete unvarnished truth of its heroes. Even at times when that truth is incredibly uncomfortable, and unappealing. The Bible gives us a warts and all view of people. When you study a Bible character, you will see the whole life, not a phony airbrush model. 
And why does the Bible do that? Very simply, so you and I can identify with those characters. Isn't that a marvellous gift of God's grace? So we can look at the character, and we'll look at the character of Abraham, or Abraham as he's first known, and we'll be able to identify with his struggles because he's flesh and blood just like you and I. It helps us understand ourselves. Helps us understand what our needs in our relationship with God should be like. These stories, these characters translate truth into life. And they offer hope and they offer stability when we go through similar experiences that we identify with these characters. These Bible characters help us maintain a divine perspective on life and above all, to develop our trust in the promises of God. And this morning as we embark upon one of the greatest character studies in the Bible, a true hero of the faith, known as Abraham, we will see this warts and all view of this famous character. Julie has read the text to us, but if you have your Bibles, I'd love you to turn to the text because we'll be referring to that often today. You also would have received on the way in a little A5 piece of paper. That's for your own benefit to help you keep along with the sermon. There's some notes in there and some questions which will um, help you as we go through uh, this sermon today. As you note, we, we open the text and we, we see these this sort of genealogy which is explained. Chapter 11, verse uh, 27. These are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abraham and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarah was barren. She had no children. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarah, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife. And they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. So the story of Abraham is wrapped up in what we know as a generation of terror. Not as in fear and terror, but terror as in Abraham's father, right? T-E-R-A-H. This is the largest generational story in the book of Genesis. It runs from chapter 11, 27 through to chapter 25, verse 11. And it's predominantly the story of Abraham. And uh, 
What we have in the book of Genesis, just for your own benefit, the book of Genesis is broken up into ten generations. And these generations start back in uh, chapter 2. And uh, these generations start with the generation of the heavens and the earth. And they move through to Adam in chapter 5, and they move through to Noah in chapter 6, to Shem, Ham, and Japheth in chapter 10, to Shem himself in chapter 11, and then finally to Terah in chapter 11 as well. And then you'll have further generations towards the end of the book. You have Isaac, you have Ishmael, you have Jacob. And in total, there are 10 of these things in, uh, in Genesis, and they're known as a toledote. So if you want to impress your friends and you wanted to say a bit of Hebrew, that's the word, right? Cholidot. And um, that relates to the generations, uh, and this is the way the narrative is designed. It's very helpful to, to, to see it that way. There are ten of these in total. But what we see and the purpose of these accounts is to see the narrowing of God's plans and purposes for his people. See, the narrowing of his plans and purpose. You see, the first generation of the heavens and earth begins universally, right? You can't get much bigger than the heavens and the earth and ends with Seth. So we see a narrowing with whom God will continue the seed of the woman. The second generation of Adam narrows the field from many people who, who um, were destroyed in the flood to Seth's descendant, Noah, who God selects to survive the devastation. The third generation be, begins with Noah, and then, as we said, goes to his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. But that ends with the blessing to Shem alone. See how the plans and purposes of a God are being narrowed each time. And uh, the fourth is the generation of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and narrows the line of the seed of the woman down to Shem. Oh, sorry, I've got that incorrect. The fourth. Yeah, and the fifth, sorry, narrows the line of the seed of the woman down to Shem, and then we get to the sixth generation of Terah and his three sons, and it narrows down to Abram. So this is the way the structure works. And we're talking an older story. Does anyone have a guess at where, what time frame we're talking here? How many thousand years before Christ is this happening? Estimated to be somewhere around 2165 BC. That's the timeline. And we see from this generational account we see a place of birth for Terah and for his sons. And the place of birth is a place called the Ur of the Chaldeans. 
We're really blessed because we have some archaeological evidence of this place, especially this particular structure. A zergut of Ur-Naram. This was uh, discovered about 100 years ago by Sir C.L. Woolley. It took about 12 years to excavate this site. And this uh, is in southern Iraq and um, is believed that this is the the home place of Abram. A city of around 35,000 people, so a large city when you consider that, you know, 2000 BC. And this particular building, the Zergut, housed shrines to the gods of the Chaldeans. So it was a place of worship. And predominantly to one particular god, Neymar, which is the moon god. Now it's kind of interesting because Neymar in English means sin. Okay, so it's kind of interesting. But um, when they did this excavation, they unearthed the, the site and they found some burial rituals which stunned them. They found this burial place which was known as the Great Death, uh, Death Pit where they found 73 bodies of servants arranged in sacrifice around uh, Queen Puba's gloriously decorated corpse. The artifacts found in this burial pit included incredible golden headdresses and beaded capes and gold beach leaf wreaths and silver and ivory vessels, etc. It was an extraordinary find. And you say, well, what are you going on about this for? What's the point? This shows you Abraham's social background. This is where Terah and the boys grew up amongst this pagan worship. This was the centre of the city. This was the place where they came to worship. So all these treasures which were discovered indicate to us that Abraham's social and religious context was as sophisticated as any pagan, Babylonian or Egyptian dynasty. Ur was desolate and barren of any knowledge of the true God. No understanding of who Yahweh was. No understanding whatsoever. So when you start putting that in, in context, the story of Abraham becomes even more remarkable. Ur's an intrusive lunar religion dominated the life from the cradle to the grave, as they saw by the death pits. <coughs> Mankind was hopelessly lost in the era of the Chaldeans, except for one distant promise, which was given to Shem. that through him the world would be blessed. Genesis 9, 26 and 27, you can read that. 
It's interesting because if you look at Joshua chapter 24, you read these words from Joshua. Now, take, take particular heed on this. Joshua 24.2 Joshua told all the people, this is what the Lord God of Israel has said. In the distant past, your generations or your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates River, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor. They worshipped other gods. But I took your father Abraham from beyond the Euphrates and brought him into the entire land of Canaan. So that verse alone tells us that the background of Abraham was he worshipped idols and he accepted the mythology of that truth. And this type of pagan worship would have dominated his life and his family's life. And it's interesting as you read this portion in Joshua, please note these things. God didn't appear to a group of people and then offer a general invitation to follow. We should also observe here there's no indication that Abraham was seeking out a relationship with God. No indication whatsoever. But God approached him. It's highly unlikely that Abraham had even ever heard of Yahweh, the one true creator God before this point in dialogue in Genesis 12. But the wonderful thing we see is that by an act of pure grace, God dipped his hand into the idolatrous hole of Ur and selected Abraham out of all people. Isn't that tremendous? And we can see that in our own lives, right? For those of us who have followed Christ. God dips his hand in to our lives and pulls us out of the mire. So we place our faith and trust in him. Salvation is an act of God. It was for Abraham and it is for us. Another one of the significant things that we see in this generational account, which we can just skip over, is the startling observation that Sarah was barren. She had no children. And when you put that in the light of a generational account, because you look at all the generations before, they list names and myriads of people and and children after children after children. Yeah, sure, we have Abraham, Nahor, and Haran. They had their wives, but Sarah was barren. So that becomes a significant issue in the life 
of Abraham and Sarai. And we'll see that in the weeks to come. So the family moves from Ur to Haran. So what does that look like? Try and work this thing out. So if we've got over here, this is where we think Ur is, down in here, right? So that's uh, southern Iraq today. Babylon's up there. And then Haran is up here. Okay, so I don't know where that would be now. Probably Syria, maybe southern Turkey today. So that's, that's the journey that uh, they took in this first part of chapter, or end of chapter 11. And then Abram moves into Canaan, which we'll see. So that's geographically what's happening. And it's not as easy as hopping into your car and driving. Uh, so it's a fair distance. It's interesting to note that um, they were commanded to go to where? Canaan. Right? But they stopped at Haran. So I'll let you do what you like with that. So was Terah being disobedient to the call? Yes. They never got there. And they settled in Haran. And we, we find out from the, the, the next part of the chapter, in chapter 12, that they must have done very well in Tehran with the amount of the entourage that they brought with them into Canaan. And uh, Haran was also known as just another place of idol worship and pagan prosperity. It was known for that. And that's what uh, has happened here. And then we see things change and we, we move into the call and promise of the Lord to a hero. I just love these verses. Every time I read them, I, I get thrilled by them. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here we have the Lord appearing, Yahweh, the true God of the universe, appearing to this ignorant, sinful, superstitious, idolatrous worshipper. Okay? And he says, I want you to do something, Abram. I want you to go from your country, from your relatives, and from your father's house to the land I will show you. And these three verses form the backbone of God's dealing with his people for the rest of the Old Testament. Because God makes some promises to Abram. Sometimes we refer to this as the Abrahamic covenant. We'll see next week how God ratifies this promise in, in chapter 15. But please note one key thing in these verses. Who is fulfilling the promise? Should be pretty easy to pick up, right? 
The Lord said to Abraham, I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In your Bibles, just circle around the word I will. God is making an unconditional promise to Abram. This is the first of four times that this promise will be mentioned throughout Genesis. We have it here, we'll have it in chapter 15, we'll have it in chapter 17, and we have it in chapter 22. And what does the Lord command Abram? Well, firstly, we have a command of separation, and secondly, we have a command of promise. So the command of separation, leave your country, leave your relatives, leave your family. Now for some of us, some of those leavings could be kind of easy, right? You know? After all, who doesn't want to leave their relations? Okay. <laughs> but you know, you've got, you've got this command. I want you, Abraham, just to move out and completely separate yourself from the things that are common to you. Your country, your relations, your family. We did this back in 2002 when we came to Australia. We left our country. We have no relations in Australia that I'm aware of. Or maybe, maybe we've got some cousins around the place. And we left our family. For us, some of us, that's kind of daunting. If God said to us, I want you to leave these things to follow me. Because we hold dearly these relationships. Sometimes we may hold dearly the country in which we live. We don't want to sing another national anthem. We're quite happy with God defend New Zealand. As opposed to advance Australia fair. But you know, um, this is a command of the Lord to Abram. And then there's the command of Promise. It's a command of a promise is unconditional because of the fact that it's based on God's promise, I will, and it relates to land, it relates to seed, and it relates to blessings, both international and personal blessings for Abram. Remember, just before we have read, who was barren? Sarah. Leave your country, I'll give you a country. And you're going to be blessed and through you all nations will be blessed. And we know the ultimate fulfilment of that is through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how all nations of the earth are blessed. Because the Messiah comes through the line of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Jesus. So Abram's called to leave both his past and he's called to place his trust in the future promises of the Lord. 
Isn't that so like us? When we come to faith in Christ, and I trust you've made that decision in your life to come to faith in Christ. Because faith in Christ is the only way you will enjoy the riches of heaven. It's not your own works that will get you there. It's by faith you are, by grace you are saved through faith. And when you come to faith in Christ, you at times need to leave your country and your relations and your family. And there's probably many in here who have unbelieving family members and it's it just so destroying, right? You yearn and it just hurts and you just don't understand. I was speaking to some folks yesterday about this and you just don't, it just is a struggle. But you know, you read in the Gospels, Jesus talks about this. For my sake, you're going to have to leave family. You're going to have to leave mothers, fathers to serve me. And then we have the wonderful inheritance of promises through Christ. Eternal salvation. Riches beyond measure. Wonderful. And then we have a hero's obedience. Abraham went. We don't see to seem to see a delay this time. There clearly was a delay when Terah moved out from Ur to Haran. He, he uh, stuck around Haran for a while. Make money while the sun shines. And uh, we hear as soon as God has called Abraham, he goes. He went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarah his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that they had acquired in Haran. And they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came, uh, when they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to a place at Shechem. So it's interesting here, right? He got up and went. But I always have this question mark here. It seems to me from the text that Abraham only partially obeyed. You say, Nathan, why do you say that? Did he leave all his relations? No, he didn't, did he? He took a fellow by the name of Lot with him. Now, did Lot cause him any sort of trouble in the future? Just a little bit here and there, right? You remember the whole Sodom and Gomorrah incident? Who was at the centre of that? Lot. Remember when, when they came back from Egypt and they had some great wealth? Even though Abraham had lied about Sarah being his wife, they still came out of Egypt with great wealth. Too much wealth, too much stock to sustain the land. What happened? Lot moved towards the east, towards Sodom. And in there, Abram had to go and rescue Lot from four kings who, who were, were plotting against the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. So... I think at best, Abraham here has partial obedience. 
But you know the wonderful thing about that? It doesn't change the promises of God. Even when we are partially obedient, God still works out his promises. And we'll see that through this hero of the faith. And by the time we get to chapter 22, he gets it. He really does. And this is a wonderful, wonderful part of, of the story. We, we have this... Um, so, so on that there, even though the partial obedience is there, it's just wonderful to realise that the Lord's promises are not based on Abraham's obedience. Abraham's obedience is based on his trust in Yahweh's promises. It's the way it always is. And we have this wonderful uh, verse in Hebrews, chapter 11, verse 8 through 10. And it says this, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. That's what he's looking forward to. Even though he was only partially obedient, he still went not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he lived in the light of the promises that God had given him. And that's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because that relates to you and I. We have a book full of promises. Do we live in the light of the promises that God has given us? Let's, 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 let's take a couple of those. Um, be anxious for nothing. Oh, okay. Be anxious about nothing. Take a look at the lilies of the field. Take a look at the birds of the field. Does not God care for them? The answer is what? Yeah. Will he not also care for you? So don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow's got enough worries of itself. We live in a society that's riddled with anxiety. And of all people, as followers of Christ, we should have victory over that anxiety. That's where a divine perspective about the promises of God is real in the hearts and minds of his people. And we finally see in the final part of this chapter a hero's worship and wanderings. So, in verse 6 here, as Abraham passes through Shechem, the oak of Moray, and then there's a little footnote in verse 6 which is important. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. So Abraham didn't walk into a land that wasn't unoccupied. He walked into a land that was very much occupied. 
by Canaanites. And the Lord appeared to him again and just restates two of the promises. He, he, he says, look, to your offspring. Remember your wife, Abraham, the barren one? To your offspring, I will give this land. Even though the Canaanites are there, you are going to receive this land. And then we see this remarkable act of faith by this man. What does he do? He builds an altar to the Lord there. Right in the middle of pagan idolatry, in the middle of Canaanite idolatry, he builds an altar to the one true God. He puts his best foot forward. Later on, you see in verse 8 and 9, as he travels further down the country, as he heads between Bethel and Ai, what does he do there? He builds an altar. He stops and he builds an altar. In the middle of this Canaanite land, in the middle of this idolatrous culture, He builds an altar to the Lord and he calls upon the name of the Lord. Abraham, or Abram, the worshipper. Later on in the story in verse 13, he goes by the oaks of memory in Hebron and what does he do? He builds another altar. So why is he building these altars? next to Canaanite shrines, because that's what he's doing at strategic locations throughout the land. And why is he building altars only in the promised land and nowhere else? He hasn't built an altar anywhere else. He hasn't built an altar in Haran. He doesn't build an altar when he goes down to Egypt. Now he builds them in the promised land. Many of us overlook these questions. John Calvin has sort of captured the importance of it. He writes this, Abram endeavoured as much as in him to dedicate to God every part of the land to which he had access and perfumed it with the odour of his faith. Abram did the same thing that Noah did before him, by building an altar. Noah dedicated and cleansed the earth to the Lord after the flood by building an altar. Now Abraham dedicates every place he stops at inside the land against the seed of the serpent, the Canaanites. So question, you're a follower of Christ. You're a believer in the promises of God. You have the same faith as Abraham had. What altars are you building? Day in, day out. As you go into your workplace, as you go into your schools, as you mother your kids at home, as you walk around your retirement village. Do people around about know, know that you are a worshipper of the true God?
Christ Jesus? Are you ready in season and out of season to always give a reason for the hope that is in you? It's something we need to be praying about, right? Because it takes courage to be like Abraham here and to to be a, a man of faith and a woman of faith who builds wherever they are to proclaim the goodness of God. In our case, to proclaim the goodness of the gospel of Christ and what he has done for us. So that's a challenge from there. And finally, just some observations from the story so far. True faith believes the word of God. God called Abraham and he went. True faith steps out on God's word. This is where we get our guidance from. From God's word. True faith follows wherever God's word directs, and sometimes that can be really difficult, right? Sometimes that can be a really difficult place. Sometimes it's in the middle of a Canaanite idolatry. Think about your workplace. Think about the the social things that are going on inside that workplace. It's no different to Ur. It's no different to Haran. Maybe framed up in some different way, but you're in the midst of that place as light and salt. That's why God's placed you there for his plans and purposes. True faith builds altars and worships wherever it goes. And true faith proclaims the name of the Lord. I'd invite the music team up. I think we have a song to sing. think through those things this week. Think through the aspects of Abraham's life and how that relates to your daily walk. And let's build altars of worship wherever we are. Proclaim the name of the Lord.